Basically, there are three things you have to deal with as soon as you mention you're going to be talking about cheese on a podcast noted for explaining things. Like the one you're listening to right now, for instance. The first thing you have to explain is why the moon may or may not be made of green cheese, and just what that means anyway. And really, that whole idea comes down to one thing. A fable. See, in a number of cultures around the world, a variety of moral stories have formed around the idea of a very foolish person being tricked by someone who is not quite so foolish into exposing themselves as the fool they are. Usually, this is in a form similar to the story about the fox and the wolf. In this story, the fox has been very clever indeed and already tricked the wolf once into going to a celebration where, upon arrival, the human attendees beat the wolf to within an inch of its life. The wolf escapes, but comes looking for the fox's revenge for nearly getting him killed. The fox, however, explains that this isn't his fault, no sir. It's the fault of the wolf's father, who years ago promised to help the humans gather food for a similar party, but when the time came to celebrate, Papa Wolf ate all the best bits himself. So you can see, says Mr. Fox, they're still upset, and quite reasonably so. Maybe you could make it up to them and repay them with fine food, and then they'll let you join the festivities. The wolf thinks this is a brilliant idea, and that very same night follows the fox to a well. Now, this well is set up a little special, not like your usual well. See, there are two ropes on either end of the windlass and two buckets, one attached to each rope. The fox hops immediately into one bucket and down it goes. The wolf, perplexed, insists the fox explain what it is doing. Look in the well, wolf, says the fox. Do you not see the great wheel of cheese here in the bottom? And the wolf looks in, and sure enough, there he sees a big yellow wheel of cheese. Come down and grab it, says the fox. It's far too heavy for me to lift. And so the wolf hops into the other bucket, and down it goes very quickly, while the bucket the fox is in is just as quickly wound back up to the top, where the fox hops out. Wait, how am I supposed to get back up? asks the wolf. At which point the fox delivers a suitable lesson about being gullible and thinking that moons reflected in the bottom of wells are wheels of cheese and abandons the wolf to his fate. Now, as we said, there's a whole host of stories that have similar elements, moon, water, reflection, cheese, and gullibility. And eventually, they are refined and reduced until they become a popular shorthand way of pointing out someone's foolishness. He thinks the moon is made of green cheese, you might say. The green in this case isn't about color, though. It's a reference to the degree of ripeness. Unripe cheeses are often milky white or pale yellow. Over time, the phrase becomes so commonplace that it loses its original meaning and becomes what we know it as today, a fanciful way of explaining the composition of the moon. The second thing you have to explain, because otherwise people will come out of the woodwork at you saying you forgot it, when really you just left it out because the explanation is in a million places and you just have to go look, is Little Miss Muffet. As we all know, she sits on a tuffet, which our first grade teacher dutifully explained to us was just a name for a lump of grass, eating her curds and whey. Now, spider nonsense aside, curds and whey are the two things you get when you curdle milk by adding either an edible acid or rennet to it. We'll explain rennet in a bit, but for now, curds are the coagulated fats and proteins found in milk all bunched together. Whey is the liquid left over after the curdling has happened. 
what you are left with is something similar to, but not exactly like, cottage cheese. And really, you know almost everything you need to know from that alone to make your own cheese. The third thing that has to be mentioned, if not outright explained, because once again, people will jump up and down and fill your comment section with posts pointing out how there's this really funny comedy sketch you really have to see, even if you're already very familiar with it, and decided it was just too obvious to mention. It's the Cheese Shop sketch from Monty Python's Flying Circus. First airing in November of 1972, the sketch depicts a man, played by John Cleese, entering a cheese shop run by a Mr. Wensleydale, played by Michael Palin. Cleese then proceeds over the course of the next five and a half minutes to ask for a number of perfectly reasonable cheeses, none of which the cheese shop has. The real curiosity here isn't the bazooki playing or the increasingly pathetic excuses for not having any cheese, it's the sheer number of cheeses, albeit with one ringer, that Cleese is able to request. Most of us can barely think of a half dozen cheeses before we run out. And at least one of those probably isn't even a real cheese at all. Who knew there were so many? This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. This is the fourth and final part of our series on the benefits bestowed upon us by the cow. And also, it's the place we wanted to start at four weeks ago when we first sat down to do the reading and research for the episode. But as we explained, we found ourselves so backed up in topics needing explanation that it was just easier to do four episodes to get to where we wanted to be than it was to try and do it all in one. If you somehow missed the previous three in the series, we can't recommend highly enough that you go back and give them a listen. Much like butter, the history of cheese and cheesemaking is so old that nobody bothered to write it down. And, much like butter, cheese probably didn't start with the cow. Back in those days, you didn't have a lot of jars and pots to store things in. So what you tended to do was empty out the squelchy bits from your basic domesticated sheep or goat, and then turn their skins into containers. You'll remember how last week we told you about milk jostling along in a goat skin becoming butter and buttermilk. The thing is, there were one or two other goat bits you could use as containers too. They were certainly less hairy to deal with, but also more squelchy. See, you could make a perfectly serviceable container for many things out of a goat's stomach. After all, the basic function of a stomach is to contain the things one is currently trying to digest, and it's helpful to that process if nothing leaks out. So goat stomachs were handy, ready-made, waterproof containers. All you really had to do was cut one out, seal off one end, put some sort of stopper in the other, and you were good to go. Which is what many of the earliest proto-civilizations did. Unbeknownst to them though, at least at first, something different happens if you put milk into a stomach-based container than if you put water in. The stomach of ruminant animals, that is, animals which eat plants and then digest them via fermentation, usually they have more than one stomach chamber and chew cud like your basic goat, sheep, or cattle, Ruminant animals produce an enzyme called rennet in their stomachs. This rennet is particularly useful to young animals because it causes milk to curdle. This means the milk stays in the young animal's system longer because it is harder to digest and therefore the calf, lamb, or kid has a greater opportunity to extract nutrition from it. So when you put your fresh goat's milk into stomach storage, the residual rennet inside gets busy making the milk curdle. 
The rennet separates the casein, the main protein in milk, into curds, hence curdling. It all just sort of clumps up into blobs that group together. What's left behind is the whey, the liquid portion of milk. And you, just as little Miss Muffet did, can stop right there if you like, and eat your bowl of curds and whey on any convenient lump of grass you happen to have to hand. Just keep an eye out for spiders. However, you may find it a little bland, and it does tend to spoil rapidly, especially in warm climates. Which is why salt, which you may recall from our long-ago episode on it, is usually added as both a flavoring and a preservative. From there, it's a very short step to your basic cheese. All you have to do is squeeze. By compressing the curds, extra moisture is removed, and the curds are encouraged to stick together into the usual forms one associates with cheese. The more moisture removed and the more tightly packed the curds are, the harder the end product is. The fun part is, you can do all of this at home, right at your kitchen table. And you get to use the other method of cheese making, acid set, instead of rennet set. Take some milk and gradually heat it on the stove, stirring frequently to about 165 to 175 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 74 to 80 C for those of you in Europe, if you're even legally allowed to make the stuff over there without endangering someone's protected food status. Once the milk has reached temperature, add in, a tablespoon at a time, your favorite cooking acid. If you'd like a bit of a citrus tang in the finished product, use lemon juice. If you want a more natural taste, white vinegar. And if you like a little adventure, try apple cider vinegar. Stir gently after each tablespoon added until you see the milk solid separate from the liquid. It is unmistakable when it happens. Once that's done, turn off the heat and let the whole thing sit for about 20 minutes. While it's doing that, set up a straining rig. A bit of cheesecloth stretched over a colander is ideal, though a linen towel will work as well, if a bit slower. Under the colander, place a bowl to catch all the whey. Pour the curdled milk, which you can officially call curds and whey at this point, over the cheesecloth or towel and into the colander. When all the whey has drained away, after 20 minutes to an hour, depending on what sort of cheese you want to aim for, add salt. You can taste test to see how much you want, and gather up the cloth or towel into a little puck-shaped bundle. Tie it off tight, place it back in the colander, set a heavy weight on it, a couple of pounds worth at least, and walk away. The longer you wait, the firmer it gets, but try to go at least an hour and a half before you open it back up. And congratulations! You've just made one of the most basic, simple cheeses out there, queso fresco, which is, unsurprisingly, Spanish for fresh cheese. Spread it on toast or crackers or use it like you would ricotta because, for all intents and purposes, that's what you just made. If you're wondering what to do with all the whey, make some fresh bread. Then everything is twice as nice. Of course, all of this leaves out the aging and ripening process, which is where cheese gets really complicated. See, all cheese starts out the same way, similar to the steps outlined above, with the rennet or the acid. But what happens after that is what makes each and every type of cheese distinct from every other type. And with more than a thousand officially recognized types of cheese in the world, you can see that those additional steps can make quite a difference. Most people know the story of two particular types of cheese, Swiss cheese and blue cheese. If you don't, here's a brief summary. Swiss cheese, to put it succinctly, is a lie. 
Technically speaking, there is no such thing as Swiss cheese. There are Swiss cheeses, to be sure, and there is certainly a product on the shelves of your grocery store called Swiss cheese if you live in places that aren't Switzerland. But the real name of that cheese should be Emmental. That is the name of the Swiss-made cheese with the holes in it. The holes are produced because the cheese is full of bacteria. Specifically, it contains varieties of Streptococcus, Lactobacillus, and Propionobacterium added to the cheese during the curdling, which gives the cheese its strong flavor and uh, expels carbon dioxide as the cheese hardens and ripens, creating the characteristic holes, which the producers of said cheeses would like everyone to call eyes, please. Blue cheese, on the other hand, obtains its distinctive flavor and appearance thanks to a mold which is present in the caves in which blue cheese is ripened, penicillium mold, not to be confused with the mold that makes actual penicillin. Penicillium invades the cheese, imparting flavors and colors the cheese would not otherwise have. Oh, and also, blue cheese is a lie as well. It's not just one cheese. It is an entire classification of cheeses, all 46 of which are produced with the aid of the penicillium mold. But all 46 of which are produced in varying conditions with varying ingredients and allowed to ripen for varying times. But if you've hung around the internet for any time at all, you'll have seen the list. The list is a menagerie of cheeses, sometimes five, sometimes ten, intended to either shock or horrify you, and sometimes both, with the strangeness of its constituents. Compared to the cheeses on the list, misnamed cheeses with a bit of mold in them are nothing to worry about. Most of the cheeses on the list just come from animals that the Western palate is unfamiliar with but which make total sense in the context of the areas from which they come. These include Tibetan yak cheese, which is said to be so hard you can break teeth on it, Central Asian Arig cheese made from mare's milk and served with tea into which it is dipped to soften before eating, and the milk of camels, llamas, and alpacas, all of which follow the general rule of thumb, milk the animals you have access to. The list usually includes at least one very expensive cheese, such as the cheese made from the milk of the red deer, intentionally created in New Zealand, not because they needed to, but because they could. The red deer's milk sells for over $100 a liter, and the cheese only gets more expensive from there, so you can imagine how excited the farmers are about it. There's also always at least one really out there experimental cheese, and that slot is usually taken by Daniel Angerer, who made cheese from human milk. And if you're still with us at this point, the final cheese on the list is always Casu Marzu from Sardinia. It's a perfectly normal pecorino cheese, left out to ripen and age until flies lay eggs in it and the maggots hatch out, at which point it is eaten, maggots and all. Fortunately, it's not allowed to leave Sardinia, so your chances of encountering it in the wild are very slim as long as you stay away from the island. Ripening and aging for a cheese has the same effect as it does for a wine. While some cheeses are fine and taste is intended after a day or two of sitting around, most cheeses require much longer periods of time to reach full maturity and provide the intended experience. This is because cheeses are very much alive on the shelf. They play host to a variety of bacteria and molds. Chemicals act and react inside them, enzymes continue their work, and the whole character of a cheese is affected by the place it is produced 
the conditions under which it is kept, and even the food eaten by the animal that gave the milk from which the cheese was made. It takes time for all these things to come into play, and the more of these factors you control for, the better your cheese will be. Which is just one reason why many of the best cheeses are produced from small farms working only with local, select herds of livestock. It's much easier to control these factors when you start from a well-known source. And for someone well-versed in cheeses, as with wine, it is possible to identify where a cheese came from, when it was made, and why it isn't exactly the right pairing for this particular meal, by taste alone. Which is not to say there is no place for commercial mass-produced cheeses at the dining table. It is our great pleasure, being Oregonians, to tell you that the largest cheddar cheese ever made was produced right here in Oregon by members of the Federation of American Cheesemakers in 1989. It weighed nearly 57,000 pounds, or as much as 337 Prince Charles for those of you over the water. And cheddar is the most popular cheese in the world. In the United States, it is second only to mozzarella, because we will have our pizza. In America alone, over 3 billion pounds of cheddar are produced annually, and that's more Prince Charles's than anyone could possibly stand. Annual per capita consumption in the U.S. is about 10 pounds per person, and so important is cheddar in the U.S. that the Agricultural Department uses it as a key indicator of the overall health of the U.S. dairy industry. It's even more popular in other countries. The United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and more all rank cheddar cheese as their number one. And it's only a little weird that no one seems to agree on what makes a cheese cheddar and what doesn't. Is it a hard cheese? A soft cheese? Does it crumble or hold together? Should it be orange, yellow, or white? How about that taste? Is it mild and smooth, or does it pack a sharp little bite? And how long do you age this stuff? A month? Six months? Two years? No one does it the same way as anyone else, but everyone calls the resultant cheese cheddar. Which is fine, because what really makes cheddar cheese cheddar isn't the color or flavor or any of that other stuff. What makes it cheddar is the process by which it is made, which includes a step called cheddaring. As the milk is curdled and the curds come out, they are allowed to settle and firm up. The resultant loose brick of curd is then cut into smaller pieces with the moisture content of the now cubed curds being determined by their size. The curd is then cooked and drained, removing more moisture. Then the process of cheddaring begins. The curds are cut once more into large loaves, which are stacked on top of each other to force more whey out of the curds. These stacks are rotated and built up on a very precise schedule every few minutes to continue to drive out whey, adjust acidity, add flavor, and create a dense, often crumbly texture. Once this process is complete and the whey has reached an acidity of between 5.1 and 5.3, the loaves are cut up again into half-inch pieces, salted, and molded into new loaves which are wrapped and set aside to age. Depending on the sharpness of the cheese desired, this can take anywhere from two months to ten years. It's the cheddaring process that makes cheddar cheese cheddar regardless of anything else. Which does nothing to explain what in the world is going on with cheddar-flavored processed American cheese. Or is it processed American cheese food? What's going on? And what's the difference? And how come people say it isn't a cheese? Well, it is a cheese. Sort of. More accurately, 
it is several cheeses. You make American cheese by collecting up the scraps of other cheeses you've made, but weren't quite the right size or shape to package and sell. Usually these are cheddar, Colby, and a few bits of other cheeses you might have around the place. You begin by washing them up and throwing them in a vat, which is then heated until they begin to melt together into one homogeneous melted cheese mix. This produces a cheese that is smooth, uniform, and melts easily. If you make it from more than one kind of cheese, you are required to label it as processed American cheese, because while each of its components was made in a traditional cheese-making manner, the final product was not. If you add other dairy products to the final mix, like cream, milk, whey, or buttermilk, you have to call it processed American cheese food. And that's it, really. That's what the big to-do is all about. It's cheese, just not cheese as we traditionally understand it to be made. And there we go. That's our series on cows and the things which they provide us. If you're wondering about things like leather, take a look at our earlier episode on leather armor, which didn't exist, but at least allowed us to talk about leather craft. It's pretty amazing to see just how essential the basic cow has been to the success of the human animal, and just how much of a contribution they've made to us. They were instrumental in bridging the gap between hunter-gatherers and agriculture, they gave us some of our first marketable products, and they helped sustain us with their milk and the products of that milk, which in turn took us down at least two very interesting culinary roads. And thanks to the cow, we came up with vaccines that help keep us healthy and help us recover when we are ill. When you think about it, we owe a lot of what we are to domesticated cattle. Maybe say thanks next time you see one. We hope you've enjoyed this little series of GM Word of the Week episodes. They were fun to make. As quarantine and isolation restrictions ease, we hope you've found the opportunity to get out and about more and enjoy the outdoors in a safe and responsible manner. Even if you're the indoor type, it's unlikely a bit of fresh air will cause you harm. Have a lungful or two and then pop back inside. It'll be okay. This week's shout out goes to Rory Weston of Canada, who said some very nice things about us on Apple Podcasts. We're happy to hear the new episodes please you, and we'll spare you the embarrassment of hearing us attempt to pronounce your precise location. Thank you for the kind words. If you'd like a chance at hearing your name read out in the episode, all you have to do is leave a rating and a review where we can find it somewhere on the internet. Preferably, wherever you get your podcast episodes from, since that makes the most sense. Good or bad, we try to read as many as we can find. If it's really good and you've made the show a regular part of your week, why not consider supporting the show on Patreon? For as little as a dollar, we can hook you up with transcripts and early episode releases, and you can help the show grow and improve. It's really very simple, and you can find out how to go about it by clicking the yellow banner at the top of our website at gmwordoftheweek.com. We look forward to seeing you there. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian, Cheese at the Cops, Casey. Music for this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Bazookis are hard to come by. How can anyone govern a nation that has 246 different kinds of cheese?